Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to the Punk Rock MBA Podcast. What's up, everybody? I'm Finn McKenty. This is the Punk Rock MBA Podcast. Today's guest is Sonny Singh from Hate 5-6. If you're not familiar, he does basically like the best, coolest, hardcore video channel site kind of project of all time. He releases a video of a live show, I think, every day now. If not every day, then pretty damn close to it. He's been doing this for, I don't know, six or seven years or something now. He's put out hundreds of shows. And the best part is, it's all free. He is supported on Patreon, but every single show comes out on YouTube for free. This is an amazing service because when I was a kid, it was so hard to find videos of anything. And now we are so spoiled for choice because of Sonny. But that's not all. He is also a super smart guy who has a very extensive background in machine learning and AI. So we talk about that quite a bit. If you are into computer science or software engineering or anything like that, then you will enjoy that part of the discussion. If you have ever wondered exactly what machine learning and artificial intelligence mean, we talk about that and how he uses it in his work. Super fun conversation. I absolutely loved this one. I hope you do too. If you like the show, there's a few things that you can do to help us out. Number one, you can share it on social media because, as you know, the platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify, they don't really do a whole lot to help us out in terms of marketing. If you can share it on your social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Snapchat, Friendster, we don't care. Tag me, tag Deanna, tag the guest. That really helps us out a lot. If you like us even more than that, then you can buy some merch. I actually just made some new stuff that I think is pretty cool. There's a link to that in the show notes. Lastly, if you really, really, really like us, then you can support the show on Patreon. Patrons get every episode a week early. There's also an opportunity to have me review your band or podcast or YouTube channel or any other kind of creative project that you would like us to take a look at. And lastly, I want to thank Deanna Chapman, our producer and editor, for her amazing work on the show, as always. If you have a podcast that you want to get off the ground, or maybe you already have a podcast, but you just want to do it bigger and better, well, you should talk to her. There's a link to her information in the description. And with that out of the way, let's get into the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this. 
Yeah, thanks, Finn. It's been a long time coming. People, people have been asking me if I would ever come on here, and I'm glad you finally hit me up. Oh, really? Well, I, I'm happy to hear that. I've got a lot of people asking too, and uh, not that I was, you know, resistant or anything. It just never happened. Yeah, no. I, it seems like we both have a lot on our plate at any given time, so it seemed like it was just a matter of time. Yeah. So I have lots of questions for you. You know, I'd like to focus on kind of detailed operational sort of things because that's how my mind works. My main question is like, so how do you balance? I mean, I guess your day job as your software engineer? No. So for the first 10 years of me doing Hate 5.6, I was a software developer as full-time and Hate 5.6 was just a side thing. So I started Hate 5.6 officially in 2008 and I had been working, and I was in grad school for computer science and then I worked for a bunch of tech companies nine to five and then doing Hate 5.6 evenings and on weekends. And then fast forward to uh, January 2018, I got laid off from my last, my most recent tech job and that's when I decided to try doing Hate 5.6 full-time. So since about March of 2018, I've been full-time just doing Hate 5.6 in terms of filming and editing. And I, I still do software development, but all the software that I write is now just to run Hate 5.6. Got it. Okay, cool. The business model is Patreon, right? I mean, that's your only source of revenue. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, well I guess you have donations too, but I would imagine it's mostly Patreon. It's mostly Patreon. I've had donations on the site since I started 2008, but it's it's very minimal. There's a lot of theory that I make like a million dollars off of YouTube, but I don't. <laughs> you know, on a on a good month, I maybe make 300 bucks off YouTube. So YouTube really? is effectively because oh, a lot of stuff yeah. here probably probably gets copyright claimed. It gets copyright claimed, yeah. And also the actual the average watch time on my videos is only three and a half four minutes tops. So <sighs> there's a lot of factors, but people see that I have like almost 100,000 subs and I have millions of views. They think that I'm making all this money, but I'm not. Well, even then, if I just looked earlier, you got about a million views in the last month, which would be like, I don't know, call it two or three grand, even if your videos were all monetized. So that's not millions of dollars. No. Yeah. So yeah. So that's been like a little bit of a headache because I think some people are, uh, I, I do get some pushback from people for having a YouTube channel that's this big. But, but to answer your question, the vast majority of my income actually is entirely from Patreon. And I, I have like merch now, like shirts and stickers and pins, but for the most part, it's all coming from Patreon at this point. Got it. Well, you're in a, or were in a field of software engineering that is extremely in demand. So that's a big decision to kind of walk away from that at least, you know, as the thing that you spend most of your time on to do this. Was that a tough decision? Walk me through that. Yeah, it was definitely a scary decision because Patreon's been around for five, six years, I think. They've been around for a minute. And I, I had heard of the platform a while ago, but I was very hesitant to try it because I had felt like if I tried it and it failed, I would just be so discouraged. I would never want to continue doing Hate by 6 to begin with. So the decision came from, I just got sick of working for tech companies and tech companies that were working on things that I didn't care about mm-hmm. or that didn't align with my like political or social views of the world. So I was trying to I was getting recruited by like NSA and like Palantir, which builds a lot of like the database systems for ICE to manage like which migrants to deport. So there are all these things that were just in conflict with with who I am. But on the one hand, I got fed up with just working for tech companies. And I remember after I got laid off January 2018, in February of that year, I had two job interviews in Philly. One was for a, um, like an ad tech company for predicting what ads to show people on websites. And yeah. the other one was for like a, a healthcare company. And I had both interviews and I got offers from both like within an hour of the interview. And I was like, you know, what? I, I just I couldn't picture myself in either of those spaces anymore. And it's funny at the at the ad tech interview, it was it was a junior guy and a senior guy that were interviewing me, and they're asking me these tech questions. 
And after the senior guy had asked me all these, you know, algorithmic questions, he turned to the junior guy and said, do you have any other questions for Sonny? The junior guy says, I know this is random, but you filmed my band back in 2007. (laughs) Like, so cool to meet you. And I was like, I never mentioned anything about that in the interview. So that was the moment where I felt like, okay, the worlds are kind of colliding right now. And it feels like now's the time to try. And I was getting some pushback from family saying like, what if this fails? And I said, well, if it fails, like clearly I have hireable skills because I'm getting job offers and I'm still getting solicited for other interviews for tech companies. And also I'd rather live knowing that I tried and failed than live with the regret of, oh man, I should have tried that when I was in my thirties and I didn't, you know? So it felt like I'm going to try taking this risk and if it fails, it fails, but I'm, it would be a disservice to me to not try it. Do you worry at all about kind of taking yourself out of the developer game? Not entirely, but you know, that you'll lose your fastball if you ever decide you want to go back? A little bit. That's my mom's biggest concern. She's like, but you're just, you're not, you're not sitting at a desk coding all day. I'm like, that's true. I'm still coding. It's not really in the same environment. So I am trying to keep my skills sharpened by, you know, watching uh, like a recent like YouTube lectures and things like that. But yeah, part of me is a little, there's always lingering like concern that, okay, maybe I am sort of, or, you know, it's my blades getting dull. Yeah. But at the same time, what I tell my mom is like, yeah, I'm essentially running 856 by myself and it's, it's, it's a business now. So even though my developer skills may not be as up to date. I mean, I'm still coding at the same time. Like I'm becoming a better at sort of business and and project management. Totally. So I do feel like if I ever had to go back into tech, I would be in a better position to maybe step, you know, outside of just the pure engineering role. Be a product manager or something. Be a product manager who's still doing some coding, but also like overseeing people and seeing like long-term pictures. Because that's a lot of what I'm doing now. A lot of the things that I do now are sort of projecting where I want my growth to be six months or a year from now. So I'm, I'm, I am doing a lot of things that are essentially project management that would be common at a tech company. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is like a perfect demonstration that you have the ability to be like a GM or something like that. Yeah, and as again, I never, when I was working in tech, I never could have pictured myself doing it. So I think it took me taking the risk and really diving into something that I really loved to get my hands dirty with the actual day-to-day of managing myself, managing short-term goals, long-term goals, and uh, trying to meet deadlines and trying to like project it forward. Yeah. Well, it's a disappointing thing to me that part of the culture, you know, there's a lot of great things about hardcore culture, but one part that's not so great is there's this like combination of entitlement and sort of always questioning whether someone else deserves something, you know, and especially with what you're doing. I remember when I was a kid, like it took me, I don't know, a year to find a fucking VHS tape of Gorilla Biscuits. I think I bought it from Frank from Integrity through the mail, you know, as in high <laughs> school or something, because he had an amazing tape list. And I mean, and I paid 30 bucks for it or something and it was totally worth it. And now, you know, you're providing the most amazing library of hardcore shows that anybody could ever wish for. And people are questioning whether you deserve two bucks a month from them on Patreon. Right. And the way I've structured it is you don't have to support what I'm doing. And I'm still going to keep going as long as the Patreon doesn't go to zero. Even if it went to zero, I'd go back to working in tech. I probably wouldn't be filming as much, but I would still probably do it at some level. So I've structured it in a way that you don't have to support what I'm doing at all. And you'll still get the content. Like everything is still free. Patrons get early access to things like that. I film so much that I don't want to be the one who's controlling when to publish the content. So I've built this whole voting platform where patrons are the ones who decide what comes out every day. So every day is essentially viewer's choice. And it, one, removes myself from the process. And two, it democratizes the entire community. So the community is the one that's in control of the content that gets published or when the content gets published. So 
again, like when I get this sort of backlash, it's like, well, you're probably still watching my videos and that's fine. I don't care about your support. I mean, having the support is great. Yeah. At the end of the day, I'm providing content. Whether you watch it, fine or not, whether you support it, I, I really don't care. It's interesting. I mean, some of the bands that, no no band has ever explicitly come at me, but I've, I've, I sort of get the hints from other people that some bands are very hesitant about ha- having me film because they think that I'm sort of making all this money off YouTube. I see. And granted, I don't have access to um, like a band's income from their merch, but I could probably... I would I would venture to say that the average band that appears on my site or appears on my channel, they probably make more money from people who discovered their band from my video in the lifetime of that person being a fan of the band than I do in the life, lifetime of that video being on my channel. Well, they could also just copyright claim the video and get all the ad revenue for themselves. Exactly. And that's been happening. And that's largely why I'm, I'm, I don't make money. And that's fine. Like I, I don't use YouTube as yeah. the revenue source. Do bands know that, that they can just copyright claim it? I think some do. And a lot of the copyright claims that I, I get are through Orchard or through right. some third party. Very rarely is it through the band themselves. Yeah. So. I think bands are becoming aware through their publishing and it's fine. Like they should do that. Like people ask me if I get mad when one of my videos gets copyright claimed. I mean, and it's kind of irritating, but on the other hand, I'm like, well, no, I use their music. If they want to claim it, it's the, it is their IP. I mean, I, that's their right. I don't fault them for it. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm trying to monetize my labor in a way. I mean, that's really what anyone should be doing. And so I think there's this perception that I'm just coming in and hitting record. And again, like hitting record and going home and just like selling the footage. Right. But really, I'm not. The people who are patrons are subsidizing all the costs of me getting to the show, paying for admission, paying for the camera batteries and the memory cards and things like that, upgrading the camera equipment. And all that stuff is going to be free. You know what I mean? And again, I don't think people realize the process of editing takes time. I've been telling people recently that I have enough footage right now to publish every day through January, February, 2021. Like I have a plenty of content that I'm just constantly editing every day and every day gets posted or it's added to the voting queue. And then every day the, the patrons vote. And so I'm con- like literally, uh, it's not that I'm sitting here and just like kicking back. I'm constantly editing. I was editing before I hopped on here and after this interview, I'm going to keep editing. So grind never stops. The grind never stops. Exactly. So the, but to answer your question, there's it's work. And I don't think people see that it's work from the, it's funny. Like whenever I get the criticism, I take a step back and I ask at what point of the chain, is it not work? Is me not filming a fest for 12 hours work? I mean, yeah, the sound person who's running sound on all day, they're getting paid. I mean, that's work that they're doing me coming home and editing the footage for days on end, weeks on end. That's work me coding with the website that's also work i mean at every at every stage it's labor and thankfully i'm i'm able to do it in this way with with patron support that i don't have to like rely on every person who follows me to support what i'm doing so speaking of editing one of the things you did very recently that i thought was super interesting is your experiment with you know you did kind of a quick uh, editing algorithm which i thought was interesting cuz i've been experimenting lately with putting less effort into my edits not because i'm lazy, but just because there's only so many hours in the day and I would like to be sane. And I found that it hasn't made any difference at all on how much people enjoy the videos. Can you explain this experiment you did and kind of what you've learned from that so far? Yeah. So actually, I've been thinking about this problem for a very long time. And actually, I I watched your video about spending less time on these sort of things for that very reason, knowing that like the average watch time is whatever. And why am I spending all this time when the return on watch time is so low? So I've been thinking about this for a long time because I'm Again, I'm constantly editing and there's so many things that I feel like could be streamlined. And one of the reasons that I've been able to do Hate Five Six at the current level is because I've automated so much of my pipeline. One of the few remaining components that hasn't been automated is the actual editing process. And so I come from a software engineering, specifically an AI 
background working in AI and machine learning. So I've been I've been thinking in the last couple of years how could I how could I develop an algorithm to not just do a random edit but just produce something that's a little smarter. Whether it takes into account like the uh, the tempo and beat information by you know analyzing the audio track or doing some sort of computer vision on the actual footage and determining the best optimal cut to to make. So I've been thinking about ways of doing that. But for this experiment, I decided, let me just do something stupid. All this script is going to do is it's just going to randomly select camera angles. I had an experiment where it was a set that I filmed with four angles. I had had the program basically act as a keyboard and it was cutting, it was pressing between the, the different keys that were programmed to the angles. Oh, okay. I see. I was wondering how you did that. So this is like just like a whatever, some sort of shell script or something? Yeah, basically. So when, I, when I'm editing manually, I'm, I'm literally sitting here on my keyboard and pressing key one, key two, key three, depending on which angle I, I want to cut to. So the script that I wrote was essentially just mimicking a keyboard and virtually pressing these keys. And I had it basically uh, randomly choose a number between one and four, and then randomly choose a duration between two and four seconds, just so it's not cutting very quickly yeah. and not cutting too long. I did it and I didn't know what to expect. I did a couple different versions and some of them looked pretty bad. Some of them looked kind of believable. And that's when I created the video. So I said, let me put it up to viewers. See what can viewers actually tell the difference? And it's almost like a Turing test for yeah. anyone who's like a listener. I mean, that's that's the famous experiment. Can you tell the difference? Can you tell if you're actually interacting with the computer or not? And so I put up the, the two clips and people were debating whether or not the first sample was mine or the second one was mine. And uh, I haven't revealed it yet. And actually, I was going to reveal it on this podcast, on, on this interview. Ooh, yeah, yeah. I was, I was saving it for this. All right. Uh, so, did you get did you get a chance to watch it? Yeah. Which one did you think was me? I don't remember because I can't remember which. There was one that's like I think edited like on the beat. Yeah, that one's me. That's the what first I was one's guessing. Me. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't notice that until someone pointed it out in the comments. Oh, interesting. Okay. Once they pointed it out, I could see it. But before that, I was like. I don't know. They're both fine to me. And so part of me did that because I wanted to see how people would describe the edit, the the actual edit. Some people were saying that the first one was too clinical, too on beat, even though... Oh, that's funny. I'm constantly editing on beat. And that's what I feel like makes my style is it's very timed with the music. It complements with like the pacing of the, of the band. And one of the descriptions of the second one that was generated by the algorithm, someone said, this one just it breathes better with the music. It just feels a little <laughs> bit more organic. And I was like, huh. Okay, maybe maybe I need to like relax my my cut style. So uh, I wasn't expecting to have that reaction of actually me taking a step back and thinking about should I really maybe I should sort of relax my editing style a little bit. But I'm not at a point where I'm ready to use that system on my actual like videos that I'm going to put out. Is that because you think there's something that could be better about it or just because that's scary to you like to let go of it or? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly a control freak. What I really like about Hate 56 is that it's my baby and I have a I have creative control over every aspect of it. And so part of it is I don't think people think about video editing or actually filming in general the way that I do. I think of it as like a creative process in the way that like uh, painting a picture is creative and maybe being a photographer is also creative in terms of how you frame a shot and things like that. And so I really feel like what I do is a creative process in terms of how I'm filming it and then also how I'm editing it. Because when I'm editing a video, I'm trying to convey to a viewer what it was like, at least from my perspective, to be at the show. And so I think a lot of people think, oh, you're just sitting there cutting the, cutting the angles and you just upload. And it's like, no, like I'm, I'm putting a lot of thought into cutting from this angle to this angle is actually conveying something that the other transitions wouldn't wouldn't convey to the viewer. I don't want to use it yet for two reasons. One, I do think I can make it better. And two, again, like even if I do get to the point where I am using it, I'm still going to have at least one final look over just to make sure that it's it's good. Because right now my process is 
if I'm doing a multicam edit, I'll I'll uh, play it through once and you know cut the angles, and then I'll do a second or third pass and just I'll inspect all the cuts, make sure that they're on time, make sure they're in focus, things like that. And there's not a better choice to make. So I think that if I can get the system to be a little smarter in terms of um, timing it with the beat and also maybe um, again using some computer vision to pick the best angle to, to cut to. That's a question that I had is I have sort of a very basic knowledge of how these things work, but not a super in-depth one. How would you define better? Yeah, so it's definitely a qualitative thing. And I would define better in the sense, does this look like something I would cut together? And how would you operationalize that? This is not a whiteboard interview, by the way, but... <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. But this is, this is a good question. So like I'm saying, even if I do deploy this algorithmic editor to, to do the first pass, I would still do a second pass just to watch. I would, I would still watch it once through to make sure it's good. And I think to assess was the editor good or bad, I would, I would literally just, I would quantify how many, how many uh, revisions that I have to make to correct the, the algorithm editor. If it's only minimal, if it's only like I only had to change five cuts as opposed to like 50, then I would say it's pretty good. And maybe the next time I would, over time, I would learn to just, uh, to, to just trust it and have to spend less time doing manual sort of inspection on it. Well, I guess where I'm headed with that is, and maybe this is a stupid question, uh, so feel free to tell me if it is. I have heard people say that like there's like amp sims and stuff that they say use machine learning. And I ask them how, and I never really get a straight answer because they just sort of hem and haw and say it uses machine learning to like get better tone. And my question is how, because the way I would imagine that works or in, in theory is that you know, it gets better every time because it learns what a good tone is. But to do that, you would have to feed that information back to the algorithm, right? And so somebody would have to code what is a good tone or what is a good shot, right? Exactly. Yeah. And when I was working in software, I mean, that's how we built our machine learning AI systems was we essentially it's called label. You have label data. You know, you have a, a bunch of predictors and you have an outcome and you're trying to use the predictors to predict the variables to predict the outcome of a future event. And so you have the label data. And so I think people thought that what I put out was a machine learning algorithm. And I, I said it wasn't. I said it was a random algorithm, but I would like to use machine learning. So I was getting some flack on the video saying, oh, this is a machine learning. You're just like, someone will call me a programmer and said, oh, you're just trying to like, it's all clickbait. It's like, no, I did not. I mean, it's basically just rolling dice. It was rolling dice. And I, I showed the code and I said, this is literally just randomly choosing. But I said that you could use machine learning to predict it. And you know, one way that you could get that label data is like, technically I could again, put up side-by-side videos to viewers, whether it's on YouTube or maybe like uh, Amazon Turk. Amazon Turk is what a lot of uh, machine learning right. researchers use to get label data. What is Amazon Turk for anybody that doesn't know? Yeah, Amazon Turk is a interface that, <laughs> I hate plugging Amazon, but it's a, it's, a, it's a service that Amazon provides where researchers can provide any sort of task that humans can do. So whether it's like labeling an image or labeling something. So like, is this a picture of a cat? Exactly, right. So you you as a researcher can upload these tasks in batches, whether it's a batch of 10, 100,000, 10,000, whatever, to Amazon Turk and people who have time to kill, they can just, they can do these tasks and get paid 10 cents, 15 cents per task or whatever. So the benefit is people get uh, paid for doing very simple things, but then research get researchers get the data that, that they need to do their studies or do their sort of modeling and things like that. So one thing that I could do technically is, you know, upload 
videos edit edited by me and videos edited by the algorithmic editor and ask people to rate them or, or say which one's better, A or B, or score them. And I could then, given enough data, I mean, I would, I would need thousands of sort of responses. Technically, you could try to build something that maps like cut frequency and cut relative to the beat to whether it correlates with a rating that was high or low from a human. So just kind of regression. Exactly. I see. Yeah, regression, okay. re, yeah, regression, regression would be like a very simple model, but there are other sort of higher order machine learning algorithms uh, essentially do the same thing. It's essentially doing a regression comparing like here's the input and here's the output. Can we find the black box that takes the input and produces the output? I see. Okay. And you just need to feed it a shitload of data to get better, improve the regression. Yeah. And the machine learning just is sort of like modifying the black box. So when I see this a lot in a lot of current tech companies, they say that oh, we're using AI, we're using machine learning, but they're really not. I mean, they could be, but not in the way that it's actually defined. Yeah. They're just using it in a sufficient way that they can add that as a bullet point on a press release. Exactly. Right. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. But first, I want to thank DistroKid for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. If you're not familiar, DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put their music into online stores and streaming services. So in plain language, if you have ever wondered how to get your music on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many, many more, there's like dozens and dozens of different streaming services. DistroKid is the way to do it. It is super easy. I have used it to put my music on Spotify. It took me maybe five minutes to like set it up and upload everything. It's legitimately awesome. I am sincerely a fan of this company and their product. And for those of you who have asked, you can also upload your music to TikTok with DistroKid. And if you want a chance to get featured on DistroKid's Spotify playlists, you can do that by submitting a song through Spotlight and getting your fans to vote for you. You can also use Hyperfollow to get more Spotify followers. You can promote your new release as well as Spotify Canvas. That's where there's the video in the background in the player. And when you share it on Instagram, it shares that video too to make your Spotify release pop. 
and Spotify Canvas is available to all DistroKid artists. Like I said, as you can probably tell from this, like I am sincerely a fan of DistroKid. DistroKid can do everything I just talked about and so much more. So be sure to sign up with my link, which is in the show notes for this episode, to get 7% off your first year. That link is in the show notes of this episode or go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash the punk rock NBA. And thanks again to DistroKid for sponsoring this episode. So I had a similar question about two of the, I guess you would call it like little apps you built, the uh, Adjacency and Sage one, both of which kind of are about recommending bands to people based on how similar they are. And I was curious, how do you define whether bands are similar? Because I, I found it to be quite accurate. Yeah, so in those two examples, adjacency is, it's not machine learning. It's just, uh, I'll, I'll explain how I got the data. But Sage is actual machine learning, and I'll explain how that works. So I basically pull data from Last.fm, and from anyone, I guess Last.fm is becoming like a dated thing, because a lot of people now don't know what Last.fm is, which is surprising to me. I guess people who don't know, Last.fm is a music scrobbling site that if you're a member on Last.fm, it just tracks what you listen to. So Last.fm has a way of, you know, if you if you search for Minor Threat, it'll tell you, okay, here are the hundred other artists that are similar to Minor Threat. And do they have an API for that or do you have to scrape the page? They have an API. The way that they compute that similarity score is I'm assuming they use something called collaborative filtering. Collaborative filtering is an algorithm that essentially what that's what Netflix used in the early versions of their recommendation system. Um, what collaborative collaborative filtering does is it takes a list of users, takes a list of things that they like. So you have sort of like this matrix of users by things that they like. Mm-hmm. And they're essentially doing something called like a matrix decomposition. And they're finding like, so if you and I both like minor threat and you and your friend Bob like bad brains, w- whatever it is, then using sort of collaborative filtering, they can make a recommendation to me based off what Bob likes, given that we have a, you and I are of a common relationship between Bob. So that's how I assume Last.fm is computing their similarity scores. And so what adjacency is doing is I, I basically took the data from the API and I produced a graph where the, the nodes in the graph are bands and the edges connect bands that are similar according to Last.fm beyond a certain threshold. And so all adjacency is, is just a nice visualization on top of Last.fm's data. Okay. So what I did was, I mean, and that's that's been useful. People pe- people still use that. But then there's about 250,000 bands in that database that I have. And there's several million edges connecting all those bands. And then again, it's different thresholds of edge strength. And you can, again, you can think of it as like a social network for anyone who's having a hard time visualizing what I'm talking about. Think about it like bands as nodes and edges connecting them. What Sage is doing is it's training a neural network, artificial neural network, to do random walks on that graph. So if you're on the minor threat node, and you can imagine yourself as like you're existing in this space and you're you're standing on the minor threat node and you can take a random walk on that graph to any edge that it's connected to. So you might hop to SSD and from SSD, you might hop to... What does a random walk mean for anyone who doesn't know? Yeah, so random walk is just a, it's any sort of, <laughs> to avoid any sort of mathematical drawing, it's just a process where you're randomly choosing between a set of options very loosely. So if you're standing on the minor threat node, you have a bunch of options where you could walk to next. And those options are the other bands that are connected to it in the graph. So like I said, there might be 100 bands that are directly connected to minor threat. So you can imagine, again, like SSD, Bad Rains, Black Flag, so on and so forth. Turnstile is not directly connected to 
minor threat, but maybe they're like two or three degrees away. So what Sage is doing is it's doing several million of these random walks along the graph for every band. And what it's doing is it's using the neural network to try to learn the context of that band in the neighborhood that it exists in. So I built several versions of Sage. You know, I, I built one that was doing only random walks of five steps away from the band. I did one that was maybe 15 and ones that were 50 or 100 steps away from the band. And so you can imagine the further you walk away from a band in the graph, the less sort of relevant it might be. Because it meant, again, like 100 degrees of separation from minor threat, you might end up on Britney Spears right. or whatever it is because people have such a... Again, what the graph is representing is sort of people's joint listening habits or sort of collective taste so so like i typed in shelter and i think i got like floor punch and sieve or something like that and floor punch was 67 percent related to shelter yeah exactly so the further you walk out from the graph some of the recommendations are going to be less accurate but you're it does allow for more novel recommendations to, to creep in so again what sage is doing it's essentially doing millions of these random walks and trying to learn sort of a mathematical representation of that band. And this is all built from an algorithm that was developed by a researcher who's now at Google. It's called word to vec And anytime you're using Google or actually, actually most online services or any app now that uses machine learning or predictive text, they're all using word to vec The prototypical example from word to vec is like, if I, if I say to you, I went to the blank and bought bread, what do you think blank is? Store. Store, right? And you know it's store and not zoo because of the context, right? Right. Like you know that going somewhere to buy like bread is typically done at a grocery store and not somewhere else. So what this researcher essentially at Google discovered was that if you if you feed a neural network millions of English sentences, it can learn the contextual meaning of a word given the words around it. And so they have this amazing result where if you take the like and again, when I say like a mathematical representation, I'm saying they, they they literally take the word and they're they're putting it in like a high dimensional vector space of 100, 300 dimensions. That's like sort of like you can think about it like as an x y coordinate, but it's it's in 100 dimensions, so you can't visualize it. But there is a mathematical representation to that point. And so the thing that you get out of that is, given two points in this sort of vector space, you can compute the distance between them. Like if I give you an XY coordinate and I say, here's a point, here's a point, you can quantify how far they are given, given like a line. And so what they found was if, you know, so here's, here's the example that that's anytime someone's learning about word to vec, this is the example that they're given. So if you take the vector for king and you subtract the vector for man and add the vector for woman, what do you get? Queen. You get queen. And that's really, and that's really what the algorithm discovered hmm. was that if you take, if you're in the vector space for king and you move it the vector man, and you re- then you again move it, the vector corresponding to woman, the closest vector that you're now in that space is queen. So it's really learned sort of um, analogies in a way, and it's learned um, how similar things co-occur and exist in this vector space. So when you're using Sage, what you're doing is you type in, again, you type in shelter, you're somewhere in the vector space, and then saying, okay, I'm in this upper right-hand corner of the vector space or wherever it is. And then it's looking, okay, what other bands are in this neighborhood? And it's it's finding things like 108 or Prima, other sort of Krishna hardcore bands. Yeah. And then maybe sort of kind of in the neighborhood, but maybe not exactly is like Floor Punch. So 
Um, that's really how Sage works. Is it's taking the data from Last.fm and then it's applying machine learning to get like a learned representation, like an added layer on top of that data. I see. Well, it's interesting how... You know, in the previous world, access to stuff was kind of the binding constraint, the problem that needed to be solved for people, like when I wanted to get a Gorilla Biscuits recording. But now it's sorting through shit and helping me find the shit that I want. And so it's we're really fortunate that we have somebody like you with, as they say, and taken a very particular skill set, uh, applying that to our world. Yeah. And again, like I came into hardcore in like early 2000s, 2001, 2002. And that was sort of the, not very early, but sort of the, like, that's when Napster was, you know, Napster, Kazaa, Soulseek, that's when that was, you know, at its peak almost. So I came into the community already sort of downloading music and trying to find things that, find things digitally. I was also like, excuse me, I was also trading tapes with people, trading physical VHS tapes. And so this was before YouTube. And so I think um, growing up, discovering hardcore punk that way, and also my parallel interest in being a math computer nerd, sort of they, they I found a way to finally, you know, merge them because uh, for a long time, I was living two parallel lives. One was just being a tech nerd nine to five. And then, you know, after work, I was just filming bands and building an archive. And I finally found a way of like, oh, you know, I can I can literally merge these two and make it easier for people to find their favorite band or help a band find their next audience by building this platform that gives everyone equal access in, in such a way. Do you ever get hit up by people at Spotify or SoundCloud or anything like that? I applied for a job at Spotify and I didn't get it. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> that was before, uh, that was one of the places I applied to after getting laid off. And I was like, you know what? Uh, I tweeted Sage to their head, the, the lead uh, recommendation engineer at Spotify. And I think he like liked it or retweeted it, but... You know, at the end of the day, I'm glad. I mean, it would have been nice to work there. If I was still in tech, that's really what I would want to be doing yeah. is working at some place that's working with music and things like that. But I got to the point where I was like, you know what? I could just build this myself and be proud of it and own it. Yeah. And I can make it free and anyone, anyone can use it. And I can just not have to be sort of like subservient to some corporate boss who's telling me, okay, now you're done this. Now do all this, this other thing that's not going to. And if they ever do want to work with you, now it's going to be on your terms. Right, exactly. So since it's gone live, I haven't been hit up yet. I've tried publishing some papers on it in some academic conferences, but it's been shot down. I think it's a novel application of this like exi- existing algorithm and it works, but it's not like I didn't it's not like a discovery I made. Right. I, I I basically applied an existing algorithm to a new domain, but I wasn't the one who came up with the word to back algorithm. Right, and right. that's like you know, so that's what would really get the interest of like an academic publication. And at that point I'd probably actually probably enter a PhD program. <laughs> Right. (laughs) You know, I get a fair amount of emails or LinkedIn messages or whatever from people who like someone will be like, oh, I'm about to finish a master's in data science from Penn State. How can I use this in the music business? And I'm like, I don't really think you can because people in music, it's just math and music and the music industry don't really get along too well. Like if you know how to type a formula in Excel, you're in the top 10% of people. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I've had ideas back when touring was a thing of like, I was wondering if I could use Sage or actually use Sage in in conjunction with like viewership data to help potentially bands route their tour. So if I see that a lot of traffic is coming for harm's way from ohio some random town in ohio maybe harm's way that's a that's a stop they should go to in that area on their next tour but i don't don't know I, i tried pitching that idea and like no one sort of bit doesn't spotify do that they might do that. I actually don't know. I would be surprised if they don't. I mean, and that's the thing. Like Spotify has so much more data th- than me. Yeah. That uh, 
if I were to do this, I would only be able to cater to like a very small number of bands, like literally just any hardcore band that I filmed. And that's like, in the grand scheme of things, not a lot. <laughs> right. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but with a company like Spotify, even if you did have a great idea, you being anyone, had a, a great idea for a product that used ML, they have such a massive data set that you'd kind of have a very difficult time overcoming that inherent advantage, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you, you mean like me as like an independent person? Yeah. Like if you're like, hey, I came up with this cool idea, but it's like part of what would make that product successful is having enough data to make it smart enough. Yeah. And that's the thing Like for a lot of tech, a lot of companies that when, when companies are using machine learning, they're for the most part, they're using pre-existing algorithms that anyone can use that I use for smaller scale projects. But what gives companies their value is the data that they, that they have. So Facebook is only valuable because they have all this data. Google Google is valuable because they have people's search queries. I mean, granted, those companies are building some novel algorithms, but for the vast majority of other tech companies, they're just, for the most part, using off-the-shelf, like well-tested, tried-and-true uh, algorithms. But what makes them have an advantage is they have access to data that like some... DIY person or some small startup doesn't necessarily have access to. Right. Yeah, it's a tough thing for, you know, I I, I generally try to, uh, you know, we're, we're opposites in this. I generally try to apologize for the man, but in this one, it's uh, it's it's tough. They just kind of do have a, an inherent advantage there that yeah. the little guy <laughs> is just yeah. not going to be able to overcome. So switching gears a little bit, uh, I went through your FAQ and it seems like a giant amount of that is dedicated to questions about have heart. Yeah. So do you want to talk about the have heart shows or what do you? Well, I'm just interested in. So, you know, there's certain things that I get asked about all the time, like, for example, dance, Kevin dance, which I finally made a video about or like glass jaws and other one. There's certain things that I just get asked about constantly. And I find this to be interesting, especially because sometimes what people ask about all the time ends up not performing that well when I do it. And so there's like yeah. this difference between like stated preference versus revealed preference. You know, you've unearthed a lot of these lost recordings like Inside Out and I don't know, you're this Bane thing going around and Have Heart is <laughs> apparently part of this. It, it seems like you kind of have the same thing where there's this handful of things that you just get punished about all the time. Yeah, I'm constantly punished. And for me, the FAQ is like, my way of uh, venting my frustration with common questions. So a lot of the FAQ is just me being passive aggressive. <laughs> right. I'll, I'll, I'll be completely, completely honest. But yeah, I mean, the Have Heart and Bane shows are like two of the biggest shows I've ever filmed and possibly will ever film. And so there's there's been a lot of natural questions about what was filmed, how did I film it, when are they coming out? And so I just, I sort of front load the FAQ with all the stuff right at the beginning. So anytime anyone asks me, just like, just go to the FAQ. It's probably yeah. going to be answered there. I'm finally uh, nearing the release of those sets. So those questions will be <laughs> pretty soon uh, removed from the FAQ because people will have access to those videos. Right. But again, like you said, I'm, I'm curious if the views on those videos will, will sort of reflect the interest that I've been getting towards them for the last like four years. Right. It's interesting that as much as people say they want to support up and coming new bands, I mean, look at the view counts on your YouTube channel and you can see whether that's true or not. Yeah. And I was talking to a, friend, a promoter who books a fest and I was saying, you know, what? You, we could look at my viewership data and say, oh, you know, this band, this band that we haven't booked before is getting a lot of traffic. Maybe we should book them. And I remember he was like, no, that's, 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 that's not helpful. Like that's all inflated. It's just a bunch of friends just like watching the video over and over again, which is possibly true. I mean, I'm sure a lot of traffic comes from a small number of people, but I do think it's a useful signal that could lead some insight into like, oh, here's some bands that we haven't sort of discovered yet or haven't put on a fest that maybe we should because clearly they're drawing a lot of digital attention. Finally, about like a week ago, the same person hit me up. He's like, you know, I have this idea. We should use your data 
to come up with an optimal, you know, optimal uh, lineup. And I was like, motherfucker, I told you this. Great idea, boss. And then he was like, no, no, I saw your editing algorithm. Like your algorithms are getting smarter. Like, okay, like now I'm going to do the list. <laughs> I was like, all right, I had this idea like years ago. Yeah, I mean, there's certain videos that I know are going to do well. I know they're going to reach as many people. And there's always that fluke van that uh, not because they're bad, but I'm, yeah. I just don't expect it to reach a lot of people. And then it does. And then that band gets like, they blow up. Yeah, I think like, you know, maybe your Jesus piece video would be an example of that to me that that has, I don't know, what 400,000 views or something, which I would definitely not expect for a band of their size. Yeah. Yeah. Bands like them. Um, I just posted this band Bloom from Australia when I went there back in January and like that video took off and they're like a melodic hardcore band, not this sort of beat down metalcore. So it was just a refreshing thing for people. And so that got a lot of traffic, even though like they're not a big band, but they got like a huge boost from that video. So for me, like, obviously I like it when a video goes, goes big, but I'm always curious, like, is this next video going to be the one that breaks this current band or yeah. like sort of gets this band to the next level? Because again, I don't always know. It really depends on like, is this what people want at a given time? And also like, there is the effect of the algorithms. Is it getting enough engagement in the first hour, two hours? Right. If not, then it gets buried. So there's all these sort of factors that go into it. I remember there was a video that you made where you were talking about uh, whether a Hey56 video, I think you called Hey56, you didn't call me a tastemaker, but you sort of alluded to something like that. And a lot of people were hitting me up saying, like, how do you feel about yeah. Finn calling you a tastemaker? I didn't mean that in a bad way at all. No, I don't know. And I think people thought it was an insult. And I was like, no, I don't think he means it as an insult. I think he's just saying, like, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but the way that I interpret it was, like, you know, there's certain things that give people a sense of approval. Yeah. Like if if a band if a band appears on Hate Five Six or any sort of channel, like a random person has maybe a higher likelihood of checking it out than if it's just on some smaller outlet. Yeah, like for a hardcore so, band, if if they're on your channel or No Echo, to me that is a, a big signal that this band matters. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I I'll film pretty much any band, like any big band, any small band. And I mean, I'll give, I'll give every band the same level of care in terms of the editing and, and posting it and giving it my sort of spotlight on my platform. But again, it's really up to whether people engage with it. Do people like it enough to share it with their friends or people? There is like, I think people assume that, oh, once, once Sunny, once I film them, that's going to be the, that that's like the band's like way to break in. But it's not. I mean, it's, it really depends. Are you making music that's actually resonating with people that people really want to dig into and, and share because that's what's going to make the video reach a wider and wider audience. Yeah, and people think that getting someone like you or some blog or something to cover them once is going to be that big breakthrough. And it's like you said, it's just not. I mean, you have videos that have a thousand views. Yeah, yep. It just is what it is. You know, there's nothing, there's no magic button that you or anyone else can push that's going to make this band blow up. Right. And again, some some of the big bands, their early videos have very small views. So it's like, it's very hard to tell. And obviously, like having a memeable moment can help drive traffic to a video. I and mean, that's happening right now with this harm's way thing. Right. Uh, I think you and I actually agree in terms of <laughs> the memes. I, I watched your video about that recently. I think memes are a effect, not effect. I mean, they're a good way of driving a lot of traffic to something, but it's not a good way of building like an engaged long-term audience. Right. And so I think people expect me to just like pump out memes and I don't want to do that. I'll, I'll post one every now and then that I think will like drive traffic. I mean, there was that Jesus Peace video where Cody, the super girl, this nine-year-old girl got on stage and like sang with the band. That was like a memeable moment because yeah. it was like very highly shareable. But in that case, like I thought it was relevant to the set and it was like a very important snippet that like sharing it actually drove a lot more traffic to the band. So I'm very particular about like how I use sort of snippets and how do I like, like push them out? Cause I want it, to, I want it to be meaningful. I don't want sort of 
nonsense traffic or nonsense engagement. Because again, I'm, 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 what I'm trying to do with 8 by 6 is build a dedicated community of people who are coming to the site to find bands and find each other and like build something meaningful rather than just like loosely sharing memes that are just going to be irrelevant in, after the next one comes in, in like a week. Well, in, in my experience, it's definitely true that as an audience gets bigger, the signal to noise ratio gets a lot worse. I mean, you can look at like the comments in my videos as proof of that. The comments in the first four hours or something are probably going to be very high quality and thoughtful and, you know, a lot of cool people in there. And two weeks later, they're just trash. Yeah. How much moderation do you do? I have whatever filters, you know, they have that set up that basically automatically block anything that uses any of the words that you can think of. Like, I mean, if people want to call me a fuckface, that's fine. But any kind of like slurs or something are blocked. Other than that, I don't really moderate anything. I've started lately hiding users from the channel. If they're just verbally abusive to me or to someone else, uh, I'll hide it. And the thing I like about that is that they don't know that they've been banished to the void. So they can keep shouting, I'll never see it. Nobody else will ever see it. They're just yelling into, you know, into nothingness. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I really do. Maybe I should do more. I don't know. Yeah, I've been, I've been using the hide feature a lot. And again, it's like, I'm trying to build a community where people want to be filmed. So it's unfortunately the case that if I film a band that has people of color or any marginalized marginalized person in the band, mm. those videos unfortunately get more negative feedback. Yeah. And I don't want my platform to be a place where uh, those communities don't want to be on the platform out of fear that I'm putting a target on their back. So I do have to do... I, do a lot of moderation just to make sure that those voices aren't dominating the conversation. So that sort of hide user from channel has been a nice feature for me. Just like and the way I look at it is if you don't like a band that I film, like there's literally almost 4,000 other videos on the site. Just find something else that you like. There's so much attention placed on what people don't like. And it's like, yeah. you could spend that energy on like hyping up or loving or like just giving attention to what you do like. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Well, there's the, you know, there's the, the thing in psychology, negativity bias, you know, we are, our recall is like way higher of negatively valenced information over positively valenced information. And it makes sense from like an evolutionary perspective. It's optional to remember how good that flower smelled yesterday. It's vital that you remember where the saber tooth tiger lives because, you know, that's life and death. So yeah, it, it makes sense that our brains would optimize for that, but that served us well, you know, 20,000 years ago, doesn't serve us so well in the world of YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, I will let you go. Thank you so much for letting me uh, barrage you with super detailed questions about all this stuff. I love getting into the details of this stuff. So I really appreciate that. Anything you want to add before I let you go? No, um, it's nice to finally interact with you. And like, I, I've been, I've been watching your chant as I've been sort of growing 8 by 6 I definitely use Punk Rock MBA to like get some insight and uh, yeah, so the, re the resources that you've built have been helpful to me and I'm sure like same to you countless other people so thanks so much cool well thank you again and always happy to help if I can awesome alright my friends that does it for this episode of the podcast if you made it this far thank you thank you for listening we sincerely appreciate each and every one of you if you want to help the show there's a couple things that you can do first of all share it on social media if you share it tag us tag Finn McKenty, that's me, and tag Deanna Chapman, that's a producer. Second thing you can do, if you really, really, really love us and really want to support us, you can support us on Patreon. There's a link to that in the show notes. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this, or you can do none of that, and you can just sit at home thinking about how awesome this podcast is. That works too. Again, thank you very much to each and every one of you for listening. We sincerely appreciate it, and we'll see you next time. 
is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, peer pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.